this tug of war, if you like, between uh, what seem to be two competing, almost contradictory facts. On the one hand, you have the God of all creation, the one who's made all things, who founds all things, who is in all things. And yet, at the same time, the human experience of the seeming distance, even at times, absence of God. It's there in the tension between the joy of, of worship or of a, a new birth or of a, a fresh relationship or of the sun shining and a great party and the tension on the other side of the darkness of this world. Many of us have been um, struck very deeply by what happened in Charleston uh, this past week. And right in the midst of that terrible event is this tension being pulled, being played out. Part of the people of God at worship, experiencing the God who is there and in their very midst experiencing something of the darkness of the world. Where is God in the midst of all of that? How is the God who is everywhere, how come he feels so distant? And if he is distant, how can he ever be known? It's the question right at the heart of the whole of Scripture, from its first page to its last. It's the question at the heart of all faith. How can the God who made all things feel so distant, and how can the God who seems so distant be known? And it's right at the heart, I think, of what we find in Psalm 24, this uh, wonderful psalm that um, in its different parts has uh, evoked and inspired so much music and so much poetry and painting that has captured people's hearts over three, three and a half thousand years. First couple of verses are what really hit us. Uh, They're the verses of great praise. They're the verses of the God who is everywhere. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Here is the one who owns all things, who's made all things, upon whom all things are founded, who is the king, the lord of all. I mean, it would be impossible to imagine the God who has made all things and in whom all things hold together. How could we imagine him being absent in any way? It's worth pausing with that for a moment. We we quite quickly go from God creator and maker of all things to our experience of God now without realising this tug there should be. How can the God of all creation somehow at times feel like he is absent from any of that creation? How is it that sometimes when I go to prayer, God feels like he isn't there? How is it that there are parts of my life that feel dark rather than full of light? How is it that there are parts of my heart that feel dark rather than full of light? How can the God of all creation, the earth is the Lord's, everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded upon the seas, established it, upon the waters. This is a psalm that was used, we think, on the way to the temple in Jerusalem, going up on the mount of Jerusalem, the capital city of God's Old Testament people, ancient Israel. It was the temple that actually rather counterintuitively represented the presence of God. I say counterintuitively because on one level you'd think building a building, a single building, a few square feet on this planet earth and saying this represents the presence of God on one level feels the wrong way around surely we want to say well God is everywhere you don't need a building for him but the ancient Hebrews knew that too 
They're very clear in all the scriptures that God is the king of all the world, that you can find him anywhere you go. So why build a building? Well, it was the same principle by which um, much of um, the the scripture works in terms of how we recognise and welcome God's presence in all things. You make holy the one in order to remind you of the holiness of the many. So to go right back to the beginning of Genesis, one day of the week, the Sabbath, is made holy. Why? Well, not because the other six are somehow profane, but to remind you that all seven days belong to the Lord. You make one holy to remind you of the rest. It was the same with the firstborn in the Old Testament. The firstborn male was counted as set apart from the Lord. That worked within that culture of the day. Why? Not because they were more important, not because God loved them more or they were set apart more, but because by setting apart the one, you set apart your whole family. It's actually the same with God's choice of his Old Testament people, ancient Israel. He chose one people, and the prophets are really clear on this, not because they were better than the rest, more holy, closer to God, that they succeeded more, but because actually they were so lowly that by choosing them, God could say, you all belong to me. It was the same with the tithe. You gave your portion of your crops, not because actually the rest of the 90% was yours to do with what you liked, but because the 10% represented the 100%. It's the same with our giving today. Whatever we give is meant to represent the whole, not be instead of the whole. So when they built the temple, this house for God, they weren't saying, you know, we've got God nicely contained here, and when I step outside the temple, God isn't there. It was to say God is here to remind us that the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The temple represented the principle that if we make space for God here, then we actually welcome him in to the whole. Now there's plenty more to say on that, but actually it's worth just pausing for long enough to apply that principle to our everyday lives. Some of us have been brought up um, in uh, uh, an era where there was a huge emphasis within our churches on the quiet time. Um, five minutes, ten minutes, fifty minutes, depending on how holy you were feeling, uh, that you were meant to set aside for God, preferably the earlier in the morning, the more holy. So let's say 5.30, obviously. Um, and you, you, you set aside this, you make a space for God. And actually, those who've been brought up that way, many of us have sort of slightly kicked over the traces. We don't want to do the legalism thing. We don't want to feel, well, I have to do that. I can find God at any point in my day. I can pray while I'm driving. I can talk to God at my computer, at my desk. Uh, God is present in the whole of life. But whereas we might be right to, to sort of jettison the legalism of it, we miss the point if we jettison the principle of it. Because the principle is the same as the temple, or the Sabbath, or the firstborn, or the tithe. By setting aside a space for God, we're not saying this is the only bit. What we're saying is this represents and reminds me that the whole of this day belongs to God. And I know that on the days where I charge into my day and I'm into my to-do list and answering my emails, before I've created any sort of space in my head and my heart for God, I know what happens. Actually, none of it belongs to him. Whereas actually those days when I've actually set aside a space for God, I don't restrict him there. Somehow by setting aside a space, then he's invited into the whole. It's a principle throughout scripture. It doesn't matter where you look. You set aside the, the, the one, and you invite him into the whole. Giving, family life, church life, my walk with God. 
you grab hold of nothing else, and there's loads more to come, but if you grab hold of nothing else, this principle of making space for God in the rough and tumble and busyness of everyday life is, is one of the single most important keys to living and walking with Jesus as a disciple you could possibly grab hold of. Set aside the small to let God into the whole. That's how the temple worked. A space that is God's to remind us that he is in the whole. And yet, the temple also represented the tension. Verse 3. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The temple was on a mountaintop. On a hill, more like, really. And it was inside a building. And to get into the building, you had to go through several courts. And right in the heart of the building, this Holy of Holies, was a place that you could only go if you were one person, the high priest, once a year. And only then, after a huge ritual of sacrifice and giving. So at the very moment where you're representing the presence of God, the temple also represented the distance of God. Who can ascend? Who is allowed to go in? There is a distance from God, a conviction in the psalmist that actually there is a distance between me and God. Why? First of all, it's to do with the state of my hands and the state of my heart. The things I do and don't do, say and don't say, and the attitudes and thoughts of my heart. I'm dirty. But God is holy, verse 3, a holy place. The word holy packs a big punch in scripture, but one of the sets of meanings of holy is that which is set apart, that which is holy other, that which is pure and perfect and without blemish. Well, if I'm to stand in the presence of a holy God, I need clean hands and a pure heart, says the psalmist. God may be everywhere, but how can I stand in his presence? How can I waltz in where my hands are dirty with the stuff of my sin, where my heart is unclean with my attitudes and my lack of love and my lack of grace, my lack of mercy on others? And as if the building itself wasn't enough, there was a, there was a whole sort of sacrificial system built around the temple and in the temple just so that they didn't miss the point that their sin did separate them from God. Depending on who you were, depending on your own wealth and, or lack of it, there were different sort of levels of sacrifice that you had to present in order at least once a year, if not more, to atone for your sin. It was meant to remind you that you couldn't just wander into God's presence because actually you'd offended God. You were a stench in his nostrils, to use one of the rather ripe phrases from the prophets. You were revolting on one level. You'd separated yourself from God. Sounds like a council of despair, doesn't it? The God who's everywhere and yet we can't meet. The one who's made us and yet we've turned our backs on him and can't know. Yet right in this psalm is the conviction that there is grace and mercy. That there is a welcome. That the God who is there, from whom we feel separated, actually welcomes us. He, he lays out the standard. Verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Those two key things remind us that we're all in trouble. Swearing by an idol isn't some sort of very narrowly written thing for an Old Testament people. It basically represents any time that we put something in God's place. Might be money, might be success, it might be our status, our reputation, uh, it might be our family, 
might be leisure time, it might be having fun, whatever it is, the thing that we put in place of God becomes an idol. And when we swear by what is false, we're basically saying, actually, not only am I going to put something in the place of God, I'm going to put myself in the place of God because I'm going to decide what's true. But verse 5, there is a conviction that somehow there are those who will receive a blessing from the Lord, a vindication from God, his saviour, that it is worth seeking God's face. How? Well, for the Old Testament people, they saw the sacrificial system. They saw these uh, sheep and goats and cows and cattle being sacrificed. But here's the thing. See, it looks to us, looking from the New Testament back to the Old, that all sounds very... It feels very pagan, feels very ancient, it feels very distant from us. We think, all this sacrificial slaughter, it doesn't make sense to us. And surely that was them carrying God's favour, doing something for God. But firstly, it fitted with the culture of the day. That was how you did things in the religions of the time and in the cultures of the day. That was a very familiar pattern. What was different from the Hebrews was this. They didn't think of their sacrifices of being as something that they gave to God. It's remarkable. When you read the Psalms, when you read the prophets, it's the other way around. In the Psalms and the prophets, they're reminded all the time, who gave you the cattle? You're coming to me with your bulls, sacrificing them and going, we've done all right, haven't we, God? And God says, I didn't need any cattle, actually. See all of them over there? Them over there, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I gave it to you in the first place. All that we have comes from you, and of your own do we give you. Even the sacrifices they made were God's gift. God gets there first all the time. God gives to us before we give to him. Even the gift of forgiveness, of being washed clean, is one that God gives. Now, in the Old Testament, they saw it through the lens of this sacrificial system. It all feels very alien to us. It feels very distant to us. But that principle of God giving the gift that must be sacrificed to wash us clean was to point forward to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear. In Jesus, God gives himself. Not to be sacrificed again and again and again, but once for all upon the cross. The one whose blood washes us clean, hands and heart. The one whose life and death and resurrection bridges the distance between us and God. The one who scoops us up and carries us through into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and says, God is here, you are distant, I have made the two one and brought you near. You get to be a member of God's family. You get to be a friend of God. Why? Because God has stepped towards you in Jesus. The God who is there invites you, welcomes you, forgives you. Verse 5, they will receive a blessing from the Lord, vindication from God his Saviour, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Do you know the biggest command, the most important command in the whole of Scripture is to seek God while he may be found. Over the ten years I've been here, it's nice to be able to say that, I've met countless people who have found all souls to be a home long before they would say they were sure what they believed. It's one of the best things about being in all souls. Because you get to walk with people on the journey they're making as they do their own. Seeking, exploration, wondering, pondering, asking questions, chewing stuff over. 
And actually, whatever stage we're at on that journey, the only question is, are you seeking? Not have you got there yet, but are you seeking? Seek the Lord while he may be found. God will never reject those who are seeking him. God will never turn away those who truly want to find him because God has come to find us in Jesus. He's always made the first move. It's always a response to what God has done for us. Seek the Lord. And if you don't feel you've found him yet, don't give up. Don't stop. Keep on seeking. Keep on exploring. The Bible says this is the most important thing you can do with the whole of your life, to go on seeking. And the conviction of the scriptures, my conviction, is that when we find God, what we find is that he found us long ago. When we get to know God, we find that he knew us long ago. When we begin in that tiny little way to love God, we find that actually he loved us since before we were born. We're simply loving him back. The God who is there, the God who is the king of all creation, the God from whom we feel this distance, this darkness sometimes, is there, does love us, has sacrificed himself for us so that we can be washed clean, have pure hand, pure heart, clean hands. So what does he ask of us? To seek him, and then in these final verses, verse 7 onwards, simply to welcome him. Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he? This king of glory, the Lord almighty. He is the king of glory. We might miss it, but in some ways these are some of the most breathtaking verses in the whole of the Bible. Imagine being encouraged to open the door and welcome God in. Just think about it for a moment, what that means. Is that not the most ridiculous thought? The thought that God might stand outside waiting for us to open the door. Is that not completely nutty? Here is the God of the whole universe, the one who made us, who knows us, who loves us. The whole universe belongs to him. And the psalmist says, open up the doors because God's waiting to come in. It's there in the book of Revelation as well, isn't it? Right at the end of the Bible. That picture language of Jesus who stands at the door and knocks. If you ever go to St Paul's Cathedral, one of the two copies of that painting uh, hangs there. And what you find, as many people have pointed out over the many years, is there's no handle drawn on the outside. Because what the painter wanted to represent is that God gives us the opportunity to lock him out, but longs and invites for us to let him in. Now, the interesting thing is that the book of Revelation was written to believers. It was written to people who already had done their seeking who you'd think would already be in a place of keeping that door propped open with a dirty great rock and not letting God go. But what John knew, as he wrote Revelation, as what countless Christians have discovered down the years, is that we're ever so good at just nudging God back out the room again. On a daily basis, needing to open the door and welcome him back, making space for Jesus each day in that little bit of life so that the whole of life belongs to him. Isn't it a ridiculous thing that the God of all creation doesn't just barge his way in? 
the one who could blast open the doors, the one who could walk through them, loves us too much to make us, to demand of us, to force us to give in. He stands at the door and he knocks. And he simply says, open up the door, make space, let me wash you clean, let me come in. There'll be some of us here who've never done that. No time like the present. Why not? The Bible simply says that we need to confess him as the king of all. That's the beginning of Psalm 24. We're to admit that we need him, that our hearts are unclean, our hands are unclean, that we need his love and forgiveness. That's the middle of Psalm 24. And we're to open the door and welcome him in. That's the end of Psalm 24. It's all there. All in this one psalm. He's Lord of all. He offers us forgiveness and love and presence. And he longs simply for us to respond by opening up the door of our hearts. Might be for the first time. It might be simply today making the decision that every day we will make space for Jesus so that in that little part of our lives, he then gets access to the rest. So that in that five minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, whatever we give him in that space in our day, we're then reminded of and we offer up the whole to him. Whether it's for the first time, for the umpteenth time, communion is just a fantastic place in which to do it. Because as we come to receive, we come with those empty hands. We're reminded that I don't bring anything to God, I simply bring an open door. And as we receive in bread and wine, we receive those signs of his sacrifice for us, his gift of himself to wash us clean, to set us back on our feet, to open up our hearts to him. We're going to take a moment of quiet, just to breathe in, to take a moment to decide in our hearts what we want to do with this space, these next few minutes together. And then we're going to come to communion and receive from the God who's already given all that we could ever need in the life, in the sacrificing death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's be still together.